Are you tired of all the voices who say, focus on the bottom line numbers? Say whatever you have to. Just close the sale. Just get the credit card. It doesn't matter what you deliver. You will never build a successful business until you grow a pair and stop caring so much. Here, we respectfully disagree. We give you permission to embrace who you are, how much you care, and encourage you to design a business that works for you and your clients. Welcome to The Art of Giving a Damn, the podcast that proves with every single episode that you can create a profitable business doing what you're passionate about and making a positive difference in the world. Now, here's your host, Michelle Schaefer. Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Art of Giving a Damn. Today, I think I may have the author of the most unique book title I've ever heard with us. So, Devin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm excited. I've got some questions. So let me start with your official bio here. Uh, you are editor-in-chief of In the No Traveler. You've visited 85 countries around the world, and you are in the process of marrying your wife a 100 times in a hundred different countries. We definitely got to talk about that one. Uh, 20 times in 15 countries so far. You've appeared on Fox, NBC, Reinvention Radio, and others. Your writing is on the Huffington Post, Travel Age, Two Hawks Quarter, the, the Citron Review, Turkish Airlines Magazine, and more. So you've kind of been out there everywhere. Your memoir is called 10,000 Miles with My Dead Father's Ashes. And... I, I'm not even sure how to put this out there, but uh, you'd answered the question, what do you do when you lose your father's ashes? So let's start there. Tell me a little bit about the book and, and this journey. Uh, well, I, and I mean this only with great love. And I think if with my father were alive to to be here, he would he would get a big chuckle with what I'm right. about to say. But he was uh, a liar and a thief and a con man. And I mean that, again, I mean that with great love. He was a flawed person, um, and he was my role model, and he was my idol, and I did everything I could to be just like him. And for a while, nailed it. Uh, it 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 is not a sustainable lifestyle. Uh, and then there was a point where we kind of separated paths because I couldn't sustain it. And he was sort of like, that was the direction he was going. Um, And uh, when he finally passed, and this is according to his seventh wife, uh, his last request was to return home Mm -hmm. to Cadiz, Spain, uh, while Ave Maria was being sung. And uh, he was not Spanish. Uh, and I, I did take him there, um, and then I did manage to lose the ashes. But I do want to stress that the story, I mean, that's just sort of like a punctuation mark on what is utterly ridiculous already. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, no, of course. Of course this sort of <laughs> stupidity has to take place. Um, but really the story is about how do you, how do you love someone and hate them at the same time? Mm. And how are they your greatest hero? And at the same time, without question, a total, you know, a well-intentioned dud. 
And so it's sort of like wrestling, wrestling with these issues of, you know, how, how do you, how do you live your life uh, with sort of like these absurdities in your past? And, and so it's a whole bunch of things. It's a lot of ridiculousness because we got into a lot of ridiculous things together. Um, and, and it was, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you sift through those challenges? And so, you know, obviously I, I wrote a little book about our adventures together. That had to be, so what, what inspired you to actually put that into a book and share it with the world? You know, I wish I had a really simple, simple answer, but that this, well, I'm going to give you a longer, a longer answer. Okay. The, the longer answer is, is when I was in the third grade, Mrs. Jones, who had blue hair and was probably 100 years old then, mm-hmm. uh, handed me back a writing assignment and said, listen, take a lot of woodshop classes. You're never going to be a writer. And oh, that wow. was for me, even though looking back on it, I could say, oh, well, you're just some ridiculous person who's, you know, sort of passing through my life. Um, at the time, this was really meaningful. So yeah. I did. I took a lot of woodshop classes, and I could fix everything in your house because of it. So in that sense, I'm sort of grateful. Yeah. Um, but I spent a lot of time in my life knowing that, you know, even though I love stories and I love storytelling and I'm an obsessive compulsive book nerd and love, love, love reading, I just knew, well, I would be sort of somewhere stepping back on that. And uh, through a, a series of weird circumstances, um, I ended up taking a writing class, you know, against my own best judgment. And I was in love. I was, I was, I had always been in love. And this was sort of like, finally, there was a, there was actually a, a teacher in the Los Angeles area named Jim wow. Crusoe, who actually said, no, you've got something. And you need, wow. to, you need to flush this out, and you need to keep writing. Mm. And that's what I did. And uh, because I had, uh, I was filled with self-doubt. Yeah. And by the way, I was already writing professionally by the time I started writing this book. I was writing travel articles mm-hmm. by the truckloads around, you know, every corner of the world. And, but that was, you know, that's little writing. That's not, you know, in my brain, that's not real writing. Um, by the wow. way, if you're a travel writer, don't. Don't send your hate mail to me. Um, I, I know that you're a real writer, but in my brain. Right. And so I, uh, I actually went and got an MFA. And I had, uh, from the people that I went to school with, we quite literally, like, you're coming to my house every Thursday at 730, and we're going to read our writing, and we're going to talk about writing. And I needed them because every Thursday I had to have something. There had to be something. Hmm. And I just kept writing these stories about dad and how I felt. And, you know, I think it was initially like, oh, here, my, what a, my father's, what a, what a puckish sort of bizarre person he was. And then little by little, it sort of like came out that I had these very significant issues. You know, I have significant daddy issues. Um, I would imagine yeah. And so, so I had these significant things and all of a sudden it was uh, in part uh, catharsis and, and in part, uh, you know, there is some pimply faced kid running around who has, you know, daddy issues and mommy issues. And I think it's human issues because I yeah. think we probably all, um, we all have somebody in our midst who we care deeply about who don't live up to what 
we believe are our standards. Right. And when those things, when there's a disconnect, it can be quite painful, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be your father and it doesn't have to be your primary parent. And it, and it could be an uncle and it could be just a really close friend. And then we have to walk through this discomfort of loving this person, loving this person in spite of themselves, you know, and it took me, it took me a lot of writing to kind of come to that conclusion. And it also, it also, uh, I think gifted me the idea of my father gave me exactly what it was that I needed, which was the blueprint of who not to be. Wow. And that was, that was sort of like a major, um, a major revelation for me. You know what I mean? Like he gave me everything. And if he did it, don't do it. Because it's a terrible, terrible choice. Wow. That had to be an interesting childhood, first of all, but then being able to take that and, and take the things you were told you couldn't do, because we all have those people, you know, usually it's, it's a teacher or somebody somewhere between second and sixth grade tells you you can't do something. And a lot of people just accept that, but you yeah. took it and went, no, I'm going to, I'm going to write anyway. I love that. And, you know, I, I took a look at the book I'm partway through it and, and the reviews on Amazon that you've got and, and people love it. They're talking about how riveting it is, how real it is to read through that. And I think it's because we can all identify with what you're talking about because humans are flawed, right? None of us are perfect. And we all have those people in our lives who we looked up to or look up to now and love, but yet we see the things that we don't want to be and the things that we don't want to do in what they do. It had to be a very vulnerable thing for you to put that into writing and, and share that. So what gave you the courage to do that? Oh, I would say ignorance and stupidity. Um, I didn't know what I was getting myself okay. into. Fair enough. Um, you know, there was a point where I had to really reconcile with myself what story did I want to tell. And it would be easy it would be easy to write a book to say, you're a jerk and I hate your face and how dare you. And uh, I'm, I'm morally superior. Mm-hmm. And I think what was really important is to recognize that while he was flawed, I was a beyond jackass like beyond. I was not, it's not like I had a moral legs to stand on. I made every terrible, awful choice in the world. And I think that's part of the, the story is sort of seeing him uh, in me in, you know, and sort of like the, the desire of wanting to be more than what I thought I was. I mean, you know, listen, it's complicated stuff. So I tried to I tried to piece all these things together. I don't know if I had courage, but I think there was a point where there a tipping point took place. Like, you know what I mean? Like I knew what the answer was, I knew what I had to write, I knew what I had to say, and now it was just a matter of sitting it down. And there was a point where the publisher called me up and said, Hey, listen, man, you know, you wrote a really good book. And the train is leaving the station. You do not know the reach that your book will have and to who uh, will read it. And there are going to be people who are going to be like, wow, I'm so glad that you wrote this. And then there's going to be people who will be like, and they may not know you, and they may be your own family who are like, you are a jerk. 
You know, um, I was, I did a, a book reading in Reno just recently and a woman who has two pictures in the book, um, is one of my father's sisters. And most of, most of my father's siblings have passed on at this stage of the game, but she's around, she's an older gal and she's spry as heck. Um, and I changed everybody's name because if they don't want to be, you know, if they don't want any notoriety, they don't have to have it. Um, but so she's in there and she was really like obviously concerned about what I was going to say, how I was going to say it. Would I be destroying my father's legacy? I mean, in fairness, he kind of did that to himself. I'm just the commentator on it. Um, but she had, you know what I mean? She had, she had some feelings about it and rightly so because this is her brother and this was her older brother and they were dear close friends yeah. You know what I mean? Like they loved each other. And so she doesn't want me going around saying anything about him, even if he is my father and even if I am right. And, uh, you know, uh, when I left, they were somewhere in the first chapter. And when I saw her the next morning for coffee, she was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm fine for now. Good. So, That's good. <laughs> so I, I don't know it's coming. I don't know it's coming. So maybe it will be, you know, uh, you are disowned from the family. I, I, I hope not. I, I hope not too. You know that that reminds me of a quote that I've I've seen it a lot. I've heard it a lot, but I don't think I've ever seen anyone exemplify taking action on it like you have with this book. And that's the Anne Lamont quote. You've probably heard. Um, you own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I did. I, I sat. I sat my mother down, because um, everything I wrote about my father was after he had already died. But I sat my mother down and I said, "Hey, listen, I wrote this book about dad, and uh, nobody looks good, and you're in it." And she said, "Well, is it funny? Because it has to be funny. If it's not funny, then it's just stupid." And I said, uh, "I think it has its moments." And so, I mean, so far she hasn't taken my photo off the mantle yet. <laughs> you know, there's still, there's still time. There's still time. <laughs> there's still time. Well, hopefully she sees it the same way you do and sees the, the value in sharing how you process that. Because that, that is something that I think a lot of people, again, identify with that person in their life that they're really conflicted about you know how do they look at that so uh, let's let's do a really weird shift of gears here and okay. go from from that experience which i mean you said it really well you have daddy issues you have mommy issues that came out of that kind of childhood how did you go from that to being in a relationship and and i've met you know your wife and you together and, and you guys have clearly an amazing connection how did you go from that childhood into such a great relationship where literally your goal is to get married a hundred times in a hundred countries. Like what happened in between there? Yeah, that's, that's, you know, I wish I could say, Oh, you know, I just, I just popped out and I was just really, really good at relationships. Uh, that is not the case. Like I have friends from high school who met their sweetheart in high school. They've been together for 35 years and they're love. They hold hands and they kiss each other's faces. And that's wonderful. And I believe that's because their path in life has nothing to do with a terrible relationship. Right. I failed just as miserably as my genetics suggested I should. 
My father was married seven times. My mother was married five times. And it's a, it was a lot of drama and... can imagine. You know, a lot of noise followed by, you know, deafening silence. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a point where I really started realizing I was on the wrong path overall. And I really started taking a look at who it was that I had become and what it was that I wanted for myself and how was I going to do it. And so uh, I spent a lot of time looking up every religion I could find and go to and experience. And I read every book and it didn't matter if we were dancing naked around a cauldron of fire (laughs) or whether or not I was, you know, in a cathedral. And I think there was a point uh, in my first, my first wife that relationship was like, you know, it was just like fizzling. And when I really took stock, because I had been in relationships where it was like, oh, you know what, who the problem is? Me. I'm the worst. And I'm making all of these terrible decisions and making these terrible choices. And I think when my first wife and I split, I realized that I didn't actually do anything that I felt shame about or felt badly about and when i left i was really like she's a wonderful person she's a wonderful person i'm i'm very blessed that she's still a friend of mine today Um, and i really started taking a look at what was that i wanted from a relationship and in terms of the the wedding thing that was a goof that was just some silly spur of the moment ridiculousness i was (laughs) I was on a writing assignment in Mexico and my wife and I had just gotten married and the, in the folks who I was going on the trip with said, Hey, bring her along. So we brought my wife along. And uh, at some point I was walking with her and another writer in downtown uh, Puerto Vallarta. And we were passing the iconic Our Lady of Guadalupe Cathedral, which is like 150 years old and beyond fabulous. And I turned to her just as a lark. I said, why don't we go in there and get married right now? And she goes, absolutely. And then the woman next to us, my writer friend, said, oh, you know, I'm ordained. And I said, okay, let's go. I took off my ring. I said, here you go. Uh, You're presiding. And we walked to the front of the cathedral, and she started talking about love and her relationship. And this was all impromptu. And while she was talking, I was thinking, oh, you know, there there were some things I didn't talk about the first go round of the vows. And I'm still thinking this is all sort of a silly goof. And I thought, you know, I didn't tell her what it was that I was going to do in order to support her vision for her goals. Things that even if they had nothing to do with me, even if I didn't like them, how was I going to support that? And I started talking and my wife was in tears and uh, the, the, uh, the officiant, a woman named Tamalise, was getting all misted up. All the people in the pews behind us were sort of like on the edge of the seat paying to us and not to God. And, um, and I realized probably within the week, because the aftermath was, it was very, very clear that even though I thought this was a goof, this was something that was incredibly meaningful to my wife. Yeah. And it, it made her that much more safe. And I think the world, for most of us, can be a very scary place for a variety of very reasonable things, because it is scary. And we're not in control of, of our surroundings most of the time. And it's a bit of a crapshoot. And 
I wanted her to be able to walk through the front door after being scared and knowing that our relationship was safe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I love travel. She loves travel. I don't really care about marriage. (laughs) I mean, let me rephrase that. (laughs) Don't like, I love her. That's the person that I chose. But the sort of like the institution of it and the, you know, cake cutting fees and the nonsense of the nuptials that we have created is beyond stupid, in my humble opinion. And so when we started getting married, I mean, some of these marriages are legal. I think we're legally married in Slovenia, in, Mer- in Mexico, I think a couple different wow. And um, I think in Croatia as well. I mean, again, it's like it doesn't really matter because that wasn't the point. Yeah. Every time that we get married, a couple things happen. Mm -hmm. We start having new family around the world of people who were there, you know, who got to witness this and share this experience with us. And my wife, like if we argue, how how long do you think that argument lasts? Because at some point oh, I'm the guy who's married you 20 times. What do you, what do you, what do you want? What do you want? And she's got, she doesn't have a leg to stand on because she knows in her heart I'm on her team. And so there is, I think there's this notion, like I think it's important to have this ritual, like this special moment that we are proclaiming love for each other, right? Mm-hmm. And so then three weeks goes by. Right. And somebody has a gas bubble and some ridiculous thing happens or there's a scratch on the car or you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden it doesn't feel safe and it doesn't feel secure. And so when we have these weddings over and over again, she gets to re-experience the safety and the security of what our love represents. So even if she goes out and there's the gas bubble and the scratch on the car and the wrong things that happen in the world she gets to come here and she knows like, okay, we're good. This is like one thing I don't have to worry about. Now, of course, the the other side of that coin is, is that I still have to attempt to strive towards being my best self Mm -hmm. for her. Yeah. And there's many days I don't feel like doing that. I'm not interested, but you know, at some point it does sort of snap together. Like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to still try to be this guy yeah. even if I don't necessarily believe that he's even a real guy. Does that make any, does any of this make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, it is it's a decision more so than just how you feel that day. And uh and clearly I can see where that would kind of be a trump card in an argument of hey, I'm the guy that's already married you 20 plus times. Uh, that seems fair. <laughs> right. And so that, that said, I mean, it's not a perfect relationship for sure, but I think when she feels safe and secure, which I would, say, which I would argue is much of the time, my life is better, you know, like straight up. My life is better. I mean, I, I, I know that we say things like happy wife, happy life, and, and people sort of roll their eyes and sneer at some sort of traditional whatever. She's happy. When she's happy, we're good. And so if I get to go do that thing, I get to come home from my own trials and tribulations and she's on my team and it's unquestionable. And I think that's kind of what it is. You know, don't get me wrong, like hugging and kissing is wonderful and all that other stuff. But I think it's really important to um, embrace sort of the uh, emotional uh, strength that we've developed in our in our relationship. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. That, that's fantastic. I mean, you guys have such a unique story. I'm sure that grabs people's attention just as much as the title of the book. Um, that's you clearly figured out what those little hooks are <laughs> very well in marketing. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, yeah, no, I think without question, there's a, 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 a tiny bit of marketing going on. Um, you know, I mean, you know, truthfully, do I want people to buy my book? Of course I do. Um, and of course I want it to be, I want it to find the people it's going to be meaningful for. And I want, like, honestly, I got a text last night, no joke from my cousin in Reno and she's been married to her guy for like, I don't know, 18, 19 years, something like that. And I got a text from her husband saying, uh, like, well, comma, uh, I guess we're getting married again. And we have you to thank for that. And I don't know if it was some sort of like, dude, really, you've just made my day longer <laughs> or whether or not he's actually genuinely pleased. What I will say is that um, they're both really lucky. He's a good guy, and she's a great woman. And uh, I think actually them getting married again will do them well. I believe that, like in my heart, in my heart. I don't know what your relationship status is right now, but whomever you may be with or in the future, that if that's what you want, I want it to fulfill you. You know, because when you go out into the world and you feel confident in in that primary relationship, you will probably behave nicer and you will act better. And over the long haul of things, you will create less drama in the world around you because you have a measure of contentment, you know, that's what I want for everybody. Yeah. There's absolutely something to having somebody in your corner that you feel safe, that you know, like you said, they're there emotionally to support you. Uh, the other parts of relationship are great, but I think that's a piece that for a lot of people, it's not as solid as it could be. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that's what we're all here. We're here to kind of work on ourselves and learn because, you know, I, I've known too many people who've like made huge, huge amounts of money and have everything. Like there, there couldn't be, there's nothing they can't buy, you know, that kind of situation. And then they're like, all of a sudden I'm talking to them on the phone. I'm like, oh, I'm miserable. Yeah. How do you get miserable? You know what I mean? When, because we find out that money doesn't really fix it. I mean, it's certainly helpful. You know, I want to be able to pay for health insurance. It, there are some benefits for sure to that. <laughs> right. Because I'm about to get the hiccups in 30 seconds, and I'm sure there needs to be some sort of a clinical psychologist that needs to deal with my mental state. Right. Right. Well, you know, I, I love the perspective that you've got both on relationships and how you've been able to take, you know, those things that happened in childhood and, and with family and turn it into something positive to share that. Um, so thank you for sharing your story and putting it out there. Oh, my, my pleasure. I hope I haven't talked too much. No, this is great. I think people are going to find it incredibly entertaining. Um, for anybody listening or watching, go take a look at Devin's book. You can find it on Amazon, 10,000 Miles with My Dead Father's Ashes. Oh, or right there on the screen there it is. watching us on video. I just got to read the review that's at the top of this book because I think it sums it up really well. Riveting, funny, emotional. I laughed out loud and cried real tears. Not a lot of memoirs that can make that claim as far as a testimonial goes for the book. So definitely check that out. And uh, you can find out more about Devin at his website. I'm going to spell it. It's D-E-V-I-N. 
G-A-L-A-U-D-E-T dot com. Wherever you're listening or watching, you'll see a link right near the video or audio where you can connect with Devin, find out more about how he got into travel writing. He's got some information on his site about how he gets free travel as part of everything that he does. You can find his book, find out more about the 100 weddings in 100 countries. Devin, thanks so much for being on the show today. Michelle, thank you so much for having me. I'm grateful. Awesome. All right. Wherever you're watching or listening, hit like, review, rate, subscribe, and I will see you back for the next episode. Thanks for tuning in.